Hi everyone, Tyler here. I have some breaking Carnage news for you before we get into this week's episode. Last week we confirmed a date for Carnage 2014. November 7th through the 9th, we're returning to Killington, Vermont for the latest and greatest Carnage convention. Head over to the website, CarnageCon.com, for the full details on this and the hotel. Now, on with the show! This is the voice of Carnage, and you are listening to Carnage Cast. Hi everyone, welcome to Carnage Cast. It's episode 50. I'm Tyler, and with me this time is amateur enthusiast of the Pathfinder role-playing game, John. Hi John, how are you? I am doing great, Tyler. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Was it everything you hoped for, or is it too soon? It's literally like being surrounded by unicorns, rainbows, <laughs> all that lawful good things. Podcasting is magic? Podcasting is magic, folks, I have seen it. So... I have heard it said, and in fact seen it with my own eyes, that you are a tremendous fan of the Pathfinder role-playing game. I, I dabble. By dabble, you mean... Play multiple times a week if I can manage. Mm-hmm. So heavy dabbling. Right. Severe dabbling. So up to the wrist in dabbling. At elbow on occasion. An elbow dabbler. Yes. Okay. So, uh, first things first, what is Pathfinder? So, Pathfinder is sort of the spiritual child of everyone's favorite cultural role-playing game trope, Dungeons & Dragons. There's a lengthy conversation we can have about open game license and how exactly the 3.5 rule set became what is, I think, as of last year, the most popular role-playing game. But... The short of it is, is the people who own Dungeons and Dragons said, we're going to change it. These people said, but we like the old rules, so can we keep them? And they made Pathfinder, which has been remarkably popular with the old diehards of Dungeons and Dragons. The, the 2000s diehards? The 2000 diehards, which has a lot of crossover back to like the 1990s and 1980s diehards. Right. From the fans that I've met and talked to. Right, and the circles you run in. Yes. Just, but just to recognize that for the other fans of other older editions of Dungeons & Dragons, they're, they're also diehards. Yes. Thacko is very hardcore. Mm -hmm. so, so Pathfinder comes from Wizards of the Coast having decided to make their rules open source, essentially. Yes. And this publishing company, Paizo, who had been writing material for Dungeons & Dragons, the 3.5 edition. Because mm -hmm. it was right towards the end. Right towards the end, um, when Wizards of the Coast made their uh, rules open open source, Paizo saw the opportunity to clean up the rule set, keep the rule set alive and thriving, and um, came out with Pathfinder. Mm -hmm. So in Pathfinder, for someone who hasn't cracked open the book, they're going to find your traditional core classes and rules on how to move them about a mat. Yes, indeed. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on the tactical battle map when it comes to combat. And, well, well, we'll get to my next thought later. Okay. Okay, every thought in its order. When you meet someone who hasn't heard of Pathfinder or isn't super familiar with role-playing games or has only dabbled in, you know, whatever edition they happen to meet first, 
how do you characterize Pathfinder in a particular, do you, do you have a particular way that you like to characterize Pathfinder? Did you just do it? Was that it? I generally say the short story is it's basically Dungeons and Dragons. There's a long story too. You probably don't want to hear it. And I allow them to come to whatever conclusions they have already made. Mm -hmm. And then do they sit down at the table or do they thank you for your time and move and leave the register? <laughs> Um, I'm actually not a great, uh, proselytizer for, um, Pathfinder, except with people that I already know are role-playing enthusiasts. Mm -hmm. I do tend to talk to, we have, um, drop-ins. I, I do a lot of gaming with Pathfinder Society, organized play at quarterstaff games here in Burlington. Mm -hmm. And most of the people that I wind up talking to are people who have found out about the group, are already interested, and are walk-ins to one of our game days, game nights. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're, they're primed and ready to be avid players. Yes, hopefully. And we find more often than not that they will come back, try a few more times, depending on their schedules. Mm -hmm. So Pathfinder is building off the legacy that Dungeons & Dragons 3rd Edition built, which was in turn built upon previous editions of Dungeons & Dragons. What to you do you find appealing about the, about the rules, the genre, and the kind of play it encourages? Um, what I really enjoy about Pathfinder is the options are constantly expanding, and I can very frequently find something new in a book that makes me excited to make and play a character. Um, I have done very, like, boilerplate, stoic, barbarian types. I have done um, kooky, multi-armed, bomb-throwing alchemists. Um, one of the characters I recently made is angel-blooded, who has this bizarre superiority complex that believes that he is fated to rule devil kind because of the natural order of the planes drawing very very liberally from popular portrayal of lucifer <laughs> so it's a rule set that lends itself towards an incredible amount of customization and creativity mm -hmm. and as a player i'm not afraid to make subpar choices if i think that they will be more interesting mm -hmm. um so for me as a player, it's the broadness of the system. Coupled with, I spend a lot of time reading into the lore of the Pathfinder universe mm -hmm. that has a real emphasis on pulp action. Like there's one nation where there are giant crash spaceships um, where you can pick up alien technology. I was not alerted to this. There, yes. And in fact, plug for Paizo, um, there's going to be an adventure path focused around that coming out uh, within the next year, starting maybe June? That's, July. I was about to ask, in what path could we find this, but I'm, now, now it's coming up. So for you, it's, it's the, the, the capacity for variation. And yes. The variety in the setting is immense. Um, one of the big flagships of uh, the Paizo Publishing Company are their adventure path lines. And the so w I got into the game around 2010, spring of 2010. 
And one thing that really interested me was they were in the middle of a kingdom building adventure path where you would go out into the wilderness, hack your way through the trees and begin building a kingdom from scratch. Literally called Kingmaker. Literally called Kingmaker, yes. The next one was a set in like the deep jungles of the, the south, racing through ruins. A lot of um, like Tarzan-esque or Indiana Jones, like big action jungle sequences. Um, Tomb Raider. Serpent Skull. Right. Um, they've had a pirate adventure path, Skulls and Shackles, which coincidentally is where I met Tyler. It's true. Um, they are just doing an Egyptian-themed one called The Mummy's Mask, mm -hmm. releasing just now. They've had a horror-themed one called Carrion Crown that Tyler is much more suited to talk about than me. You listeners can go back into the Carnage Cash archives and uh, read about our early adventures in uh, Ustalov. So there's so much to explore and do in the... Uh, in the Pathfinder universe that I'm always finding something else that makes me go, oh, that gives me an idea. Mm -hmm. And so it's so the it's the the world's giving you ideas. The rules, the new rules variations are, the and rules expansions are, are giving you ideas. The rules are flexible enough to keep up with the lore of the world. Right. Which is... And the, lore, and the world is just built to be everything. Yes. So you mentioned earlier uh, the half the angel blooded character, and yeah. I'm sort of curious, and that makes me want to know more about when you're making a character, how much of it, how much of the character becomes mechanical, and how much of it is you deciding this is the, that character's problem or issue or, or whatever. Huh. Um. I tend to tackle both at the same time. Sometimes I'm inspired by the mechanics. I have one character that I describe as a like ninth level know-it-all because that's basically what he does. He's designed to know everything. So his character personality is kind of abrasive. He has a solution for everything um, packed into his bag somewhere. He just needs to find it. And as a, like, the, the crunch of him is I have... Uh, a lot of feats designed to maximize knowledge skills. I have a couple class choices that, you know, may have weakened me in some regards, but have given me a lot of versatility in literally giving me a stipend for this is how much equipment you have in your bag as a gold cost that it's unspecified. Mm -hmm. So when you need it, you can go, oh, I happen to have this and pull it out. And it's very flavorful because his bags are like bulging to the seams i've made all of his holding things extra dimensional so i can just be like scroll 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 <laughs> we're saved guys so you you, you traded brawn for versatility yeah um he is extraordinarily physically frail i a the sort of character that like a solid hit from like an optimized enemy would flatten him mm -hmm. quite literally it has come very close to happening before. Um, so it depends on the character I'm making. Some are more or less well-rounded. Mm -hmm. with, with the the angel-blooded in particular, what? Because I'm I'm stuck on that description you, <laughs> that you that you gave us. What? Um, 
I, what was what was what were you thinking there? Do you did you want to play Lucifer type and then build one, or was the angel did the angel blood become available and you're like I could do this with that? Uh, so I with that character I haven't even had a chance to play him yet. So all I've done is like make his character sheet. And I wrote up a backstory, which includes a thesis proposal. <laughs> um, I definitely got hooked on the idea that was then supported by the rules. So the I, I thought the idea of a character who would summon and control devils was an interesting character choice to begin with. And having the added complexity of having it be a character that would traditionally be a good character I went oh this sounds like a really interesting role-playing choice and actually the reason the backstory was written was because I was like can I make a cohesive philosophical argument for why I have this guy with angel blood summoning devils so I, and I think I can I feel pretty good about that <laughs> but you haven't had the chance to put it to the, I haven't had the yet. chance to put it into play yet because I wind up running more often than I play, mm -hmm. which, you know, is great with me because I love terrifying characters. So you are a killer DM? No, I'm a scary DM. Okay. A lot of, a lot of Call of Cthulhu in my background, so I know exactly what to not say to make player characters nervous, but I think the, the last time I killed a character was just an unlucky axe crit, and that can just happen to anybody. Sure, it's part of the game. So you you mentioned earlier, starting in, in about 2010, what, where, what were the circumstances? How did you discover Pathfinder? Well, um, it was my senior year of college, so I was looking for new ways to procrastinate because senioritis hit pretty hard. Yep. And I want to say, I think it was Penny Arcade had put up something about like, oh, look at this, like it's basically Dungeons and Dragons. And I, I think it was in the first year or so of Pathfinder's Genesis. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh man, I really like my like middle school, high school days of playing 3.0 and 3.5 with friends. So mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, that looks cool. And Impulse bought the core rulebook. And I found myself on the Paizo site and I was clicking around and found my way to their organized play campaign, the Pathfinder Society. Right. So I showed up one day. I didn't even have a character made. I just like had the book in like a character sheet and I'm like making my rogue in their like playroom waiting for someone to come by for society play and uh that's pretty much it this was real life or virtual play space um this was a real play space okay um down at the uh i can't remember the different names they use they have like the game lounge and the game space at quarter staff which one's which at quarter staff the um, the space is across from the store Okay, so I was in the game space making my character, waiting for someone to come open up the game lounge. Ah. So you, you, you jumped right into the, the local society scene. A, yes, I did, because I didn't have a, uh, you know, senior year, everyone's going off to college, so I didn't have a play group in place. Mm -hmm. And so this was a way for me to get to meet other local players who were also interested in playing role-playing games. 
I remember when Pathfinder launched at Quarterstaff, they had like a ziggurat of core books in, in the retail area, and the ziggurat slowly dwindled. Yeah, and they... Well, part of that might have been that I've found that my first printing core rulebook is now just like falling apart. Planned obsolescence, I say. Yes. But um, it's definitely, I think, just a very uh, attractive book. Like, all the formatting is, like, very nice. And they've done a really good job of keeping up with printings that go and fix typos or um, a couple definitive arguments. Like, they recently changed... By recently, I think, like, within the past two years. Mm -hmm. Changed the stealth rules to what everyone uses when they stealth anyways. So That's they changed the wording to mechanically rules as written line up with how stealth should be working okay i didn't realize that i i mean i guess i inferred that they were updating it with the printings but i never really thought about they were they were clarifying rules like that i figured it would just be typos or missing weapon entries i think that was the biggest change that i can think of mm -hmm. and the book has at this point been out five, four or five years so we could look i'm pretty certain i have a first printing on the shelf but <laughs> well i i can see it and it still has your binding which means it's about like one up on mine well, mine is packing tape well that's because you run like a maniac as many times a week as you can yeah and i got in about three hours a week for the last two years and that, that was the, <laughs> the bulk of my play that's fair yeah uh, which is why carrying crown took two years <laughs> fair enough so that's when Pathfinder started, but you, you've been in role-playing games since high school or earlier? So I remember my first game of 3rd edition Dungeons & Dragons was played on the ski club bus with one other kid who thought it was really funny to put on the pile of loot a television that was playing Barney. Really broke the, the setting for me, but I'm pretty sure I immediately axed the thing because I was a middle school boy and I was playing a game where I had an axe and the only thing I was limited by was my conversational skills. <laughs> Which did extend to I cut the I chopped the TV in two. Yes. There was probably some obscenity too. I was not terribly creative as a middle schooler. That's fair. So it was it was all D and D throughout or you mentioned uh, Call of Cthulhu too? It was all D and D throughout. I got into Call of Cthulhu on a whim. Um, when I was in college, I was wandering around Quarterstaff Games here in Burlington, and I went, Call of Cthulhu? Like H.P. Lovecraft? And then I got some friends together, and there was a lot of, like, terror and blood. And it was... So my role-playing experience of prime... Uh, I think almost exclusively been Dungeons & Dragons, um, Call of Cthulhu, and Pathfinder. Okay. So you know what you like and you play it. Yeah, and I'm certainly open to other systems, but if they're conflicting with one of my systems, then that's hard. <laughs> yeah, and Pathfinder is so expansive that it can be so expansive that I've always been impressed by the the lengths people can take it to on the message boards when they're sort of proving out a concept. And you sounds like you... My theory craft extends to what I come up with on my own, not how big a number I can make on a forum. <laughs> So you, you've mentioned a couple not, uh, a couple times now uh, things like um, character building and optimization versus uh, uh, story-based choices. Yes. And I'm curious, what, um, how, how do you see those, because they're, they're sort of 
some some people would characterize that they're at odds. Like you must build the correct character versus well, no, I built the character who has a hat that he he doesn't like to give up because he likes his lucky hat. <laughs> yeah. How does that dichotomy play out at the table? That's going to depend on the table that you are at completely, because I have seen it played out both ways, where some people are just like, well, I took power attacks so I can do so much more damage. And there are other people who are like, I took blind fight because one time I got in a fight while I was blind, so my character probably really wants to be able to fight things when he can't see. I think Pathfinder, just like any other system, is only going to be as much fun as you have with the other people you are playing it with. Mm -hmm. You can have ultra-optimized characters that you're able to really express in a meaningful way and put story and import behind what they do. Um, or you're going to have people who make terribly suboptimal choices and then play it with all the personality of a stick. Um, there's not a right or wrong way to play the game. There are different styles. Right. The, you're going to have the most fun at your table when you have a, a group of people who are able to match your style. So if you're a really story-based um, player, then I would just fight the good fight, find as many other good story-based players as you can, and cling to all of those important moments that you create at your table because you're not always going to get that at every table. Right. So while the system definitely has elements of rules mastery in it, I have definitely played games where I went home after the session and was like, oh my god, what is my character going to do? Uh, because I was put in a moral quandary and wasn't sure how my character would react. Mm -hmm. And you had to sleep on it? It, it took me like more than a more than one night to figure that one out, but uh, like that's going to be a gaming moment that I remember. Where I'm like, well, the uh, the game master just completely turned me on my head with that one. <laughs> so, is there room for them to, for those two sides to to play together, or do you, or do you think it's like with like? I think that you can have players who can do both, but if you're not willing to do one or the other you're you're limiting your own gaming circle which i think is like a tough choice to make mm -hmm. so that's how pathfinder or that's some of your experiences with how pathfinder the game plays um you mentioned that most of your play time is going to the pathfinder society yes and now that is an organized play group what is organized play so organized play is a worldwide uh, meta campaign to jump on the bandwagon of people who overuse the word meta. Mm -hmm. I know um, it's a favorite word of yours. <laughs> it's a great one. Um, so in theory, I can level my character up to level three through adventures here. Um, I'm on vacation all the way in California hypothetically, which mm -hmm. would be great if anyone wants to give me a plane ticket to California. And um, there, I see there's a local game going on in California while I'm there. I can hop in at a table with my third level character, and because we're all following the same set of rules about character creation and playing in the same pre-organized adventures, 
that my character is completely legal to be at that table and everything is hunky-dory. Mm -hmm. One thing about uh, Pathfinder organized play that we were talking about off the record before is there are seasons that give um, these extended narrative arcs to a year's worth of scenarios being released. Mm -hmm. So uh, if I'm playing a season five scenario, um, which is the current Pathfinder Society season, there's been a lot of emphasis on a region of the game world called the World Wound, which is literally just spawning demons and in-game no one knows why. There's just lots of demons arriving in Galarian, the game world. And so the Pathfinder Society sees a um, shiny trinket it wants in the world wound and so is helping to deal with these hordes of demons in order to get to their shiny trinket. Another point that I should probably make is the Pathfinder Society that I keep referencing is a, an organization in the game world of like-minded adventurers. Mm -hmm. Whenever I'm explaining this to someone who uh, seems to be on a familiar level of like nerd terminology as myself, mm -hmm. I generally say it's like if Indiana Jones had an organization to back up all of his adventuring. You are gatherers of lore um, and antiquities. So, glorified Tomb Raiders. Oh, absolutely. With a certain emphasis, uh, the, the three tenets of the Pathfinder Society that also extend to players, even if not all of them remember, <laughs> are to explore, to cooperate, and to report. Mm -hmm. So the ways that plays out in organized play, explore is you're going to play the adventure, which... A lot of the time involves expanding the society's influence or just going and raiding a tomb somewhere. Um, you're going to cooperate, which means it doesn't matter if your teammate might have a philosophical difference with you. You are teammates and you are there to do your mission, so you better damn well do your mission. Mm -hmm. And to report, which mostly winds up paperwork on the behalf of the GM, but sometimes players will actually take notes, which is always refreshing. Right. And then there's the report sheets at the end, which I've, I've read a bit about. Yes. Um, the leveling up system, instead of doing your traditional Dungeons and Dragons, well, you killed five goblins and their eighth were 20 experience, you get 100 experience. Um, they make each successful mission worth a certain amount of experience for your character. So after three missions or one extra long mission, mm -hmm. you gain a level, mm -hmm. which is a lot better than going, well, in my mind is a lot simpler than going, so I stop on this ant, how much experience is that worth? <laughs> what about the whole ant hill? Yeah. Does that count as a swarm? What if I pour boiling water <laughs> in the hill? Can I get them all in one go? <laughs> so... So in an organized play campaign, uh, is this a static world or are things changing? No, this is a living world, and the way that that uh, the way that that is most um, present is in a mechanic um, introduced for Pathfinder Society called factions. Mm -hmm. So you have a group that your character organizes their ideals to go along with. Um, in the beginning there were five different factions and they were all based on different national powers and the 
backstory was supposed to be that there was some sort of like shadow war over who was going to gain the most influence over the city that the Pathfinder Society was based in and that was being played out inside the Pathfinder Society. They've since, thank God, moved away <laughs> from that. Uh-huh. Um, and other factions have been introduced. Um, one is the Grand Lodge, which means you are just a Pathfinder. You're doing your Pathfinder missions in order to help the Pathfinder Society. Mm-hmm. Um, they've added a criminal element um, that has sort of a mob family feel. They added a literal do-gooder um, faction where you are using the Pathfinder Society's resources to help fight the good fight while you are doing your Pathfinder missions. So they've expanded that in order to give some greater variety in people building characters that wouldn't otherwise necessarily fit into um, the the national factions. There's also been factions that have been removed. Two factions that were introduced at the beginning of Season 3 mm-hmm. were removed at the end of Season 4. Um, one of them being a, another regional group um, focused on the Asian analog of the world that showed up for two seasons, did some things and then left and i didn't pay much attention to them and i don't think many other people did either which is why they left they didn't make a splash so they went home didn't make a splash and another group called the shadow lodge who were bad guys in season two scenarios i think i played in one of those became good guys in season three and four scenarios as they were reconciled with the leaders of the pathfinder society Mm mm-hmm um, who were sort of doing, uh, we would usually describe them as they're the union of the Pathfinder Society who are looking out for other Pathfinder agents because they don't believe the people in charge are doing a good enough job of it. And then they left in season four because it turns out that, well, there's spoilers involved, <laughs> so I won't go into it. Okay. But yeah, this is a this has been... De- moving this is a developing storyline that's been going forward since season one or two depending on when the the new factions came in yeah they have uh, you've seen different factions begin to ebb and flow Mm -hmm. that they really i think did a much better job starting to write for that starting with season four where things happen to the factions that show up in later scenarios and you start to see different um, factions having arcs. Like there is a season two scenario where there is a prominent faction leader even who um, winds up being a traitor to the society. That season three, he's back and there's not really, it's not well resolved in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But with seasons four and five, um, faction leaders are beginning to make references to things that have happened in earlier seasons. Um, Sort of like a tip of the hat to people who have been sticking with the society for, you know, the past two years and have seen these um, factions go through some difficult times. There was um, one scenario where a faction leader is literally vanished. No idea where they went. There's no 
note, there's no clues, and the entire scenario is based around finding out what happened to this person. Because they're a Pathfinder Society agent, so even if you think this person is reprehensible, you are going to go and help them out because you are Pathfinders, damn it. Mm -hmm. So in the Pathfinder Society, that bond trumps ideology or philosophy. In Well, in character, yes. In character. Out of character, um, it makes for some excellent banter. <laughs> As you, like build up your stockpile of bile for other factions depending on how vitriolic your character is right um also they specifically put a no pvp clause no player versus player just in case someone's ideology really rankles you mm -hmm. they they have that meta rule going no you can't stab your fellow man we frown on that. what about declining to save them I mean, as a GM, I would allow it. <laughs> but the other player might not smile on that. Right, and theoretically the, the players are all friends. You would hope so. Yeah. No PvP is a, is a variation of Pathfinder Society from the core rulebook. Are there any other uh, rules variants people would want to know about? <laughs> um, like XP, the XP change? Well, the XP change is big. There is... No item crafting, so for any player who is looking to save a quick buck, sorry, because I think the developers went, you know, this is really great in a game that has, like, a certain amount of downtime, but, you know, you might not play your character for a couple weeks at a time if you're playing in a different level tier. Right. Um, so, in a world that is assumed to have unlimited downtime in between your character's mission A and mission B, they don't want to leave that system open for, well, I just made, like, you know, a whole bunch of magical belts, so I have so much gold now because I sold it all. <laughs> Especially with the XP cost was taken out of Pathfinder. Yes. That was in 3.5. Which was a change I liked because it meant you weren't debilitating your character. Well, yes, but it also doesn't work well in an organized play campaign. No. So you can't say, hey guys, um, I'm here for the adventure and I got everyone in the party um, these things that completely blank your mind against enemy casters. So congratulations for partying with me. <laughs> Big thumbs up. I think everybody at that table would be happy personally. Well, except for the GM who's sitting there going, oh, that nerfs the boss fight. I can't dominate anyone now. Dominate, dominating is such a. <laughs> I, I have, I maybe I just haven't, I haven't played enough, but uh, I feel like taking a character away is a no-no. Generally, when I'm GMing, I don't take the character away. I say, hey, guess what? You get to break that PvP rule because your character is being told to kill them all. Mm -hmm. So. Take this, take this instance that very rarely happens and really run with it. What, somebody, what is somebody who's new to organized play going to find when they go? That depends on the table that you sit down at. A new player walking in um, can either, if they have exactly zero experience with the game, we can hand them a pre-gen, talk them through some of the basic rules and get a game going a pre-generated character right sorry i'm going into the lingo no um, I, I i think our audience is going to be okay with that just in case 
pre-generated character, a mm-hmm. uh, character made under the society rules that will be perfectly legal. Um, in fact, earlier versions of the guide to organized play even states like, if you really like your pre-generated character, you can just like change the name, copy down the stats onto a character sheet, and that can be your character as you continue on in the organized play world. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you are someone who has some experience with the system or real fast learner um, and go and make your own character. Show up at a table and say, hey, here's my level one. Um, the minimum number to field a table is three players and then um, someone, usually the game master or one of the other players, runs a an extra pre-generated character to fill out for your um, stereotypical four-person adventuring party. Mm-hmm. For um, the ideal in this, uh, in this setup? It's actually got changed with season four to have six be the ideal for the adventuring party because they pathfinder society powers that be were crunching the numbers and said more people are sitting like six players at a table than they are sitting four. so Mm -hmm. um one person is behind the the gm screen and they are holding a module or no terminology is scenario mm-hmm. that they get at paizo.com p-a-i-z-o which will be in the show notes which will be in the show notes says tyler mm-hmm. and um they have the stat blocks for monsters or references to what book the monster is in and the the entire adventure is contained within about 20 pages they usually run from think five to eight encounters that can be social encounters can be a trap can be this sprawling so many mooks all over the place battle Mm -hmm. um, depending on the adventure and the adventures are designed to take place in a four-hour span so it's really meant to get it done in a night assuming everybody's on task Yes. Uh, assuming you can keep everyone from talking about the latest episode of Doctor Who or check out this new feed I picked up or I've been reading this really great book, four hours, um, four to five hours is usually the expected span of a episodic adventure. Mm-hmm. For, so, for a new player, what's the best way to learn this? Is it to jump in feet first or is it to... I wholeheartedly believe that the best way to learn is to jump in feet first. Um, I recently ran a game where I had uh, two players, three players who were running pre-gens, one of which I think had slim to no role-playing experience, and one player who had like bought his core rulebook and was making his character as I scrambled to set up the table because I didn't expect to be running it. <laughs> and it was, I think, one of the more memorable games I have run in a long time because everyone was really excited um, to be playing and just had a really excellent time of like uh, it was a an investigation style scenario and they really immersed themselves in characters that they didn't make characters that they were that they chose out of like the pre-generated stack mm-hmm. and said yeah yeah sure this looks like fun and did a spectacular job of um, figuring out who those characters were and what they would do in that situation and it was a, a blast for me as a GM. I had given up my seat to play at a table because I was like, we have a group of people who are stranded and don't have a game, so I will go take care of that for them. 
sacrificing to make other people happy. Oh my god, it was it made me happy because I had so much fun running that adventure. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the ups and downs of the organized play format, particularly with emphasis on playing in public? Okay, um, the ups and downs of playing in public. Uh, one thing that I have found to be a huge benefit is having new players walk in and being able to go, yeah, we can muster a first level table who's got like low level characters in their folders um, and just having a very open community. We had one point this past summer where we were expecting to have like maybe two tables worth of players mm -hmm. and wound up like swamped with maybe 20 people. Really? Wow. So we wound up having to expand to four tables um, happening, three in between like two fairly small rooms yeah. and one table playing literally in the hallway um, because we were just like, this is how we're going to have room. But mm -hmm. we sat everybody we had a couple first-time players who were like hey we heard about this sounds like fun can we play and we're like yes please do cool. we haven't quite hit that number possibly because we scared everyone off with how little room there was but we've also been expanding to have ourselves more game days during the week so we can spread out that player base right you're up to uh the broken groups up to three days a week three ish um, we consistently seat a table Sunday during the day um, and Monday and Wednesday nights. Mm -hmm. And if we can get a second table, we are really happy about that. Um, but by spreading it out, we have, I think, taken some of the sting out of those days that everyone is trying to hear themselves think. Okay. The... Um, cons of organized play is that it is not a custom-made experience for the characters who are at the table, which happens when you're trying to make a uniform experience for people literally around the world. There's occasionally more of an um, emphasis on, we got to get this done in this amount of time so we can like get out of the store before it closes, because your scenarios are designed to run in four-hour slots, so people usually schedule them for four-hour slots. So there have been times that I've found myself, you know, going into that last boss fight with 20 minutes before I'm supposed to be handing the keys in to the store people, and we, we, you lose some of that ability to say, okay, we're going to call a pause, we're going to start the fight back here, because with organized play, you're not necessarily going to get the same people coming back week after week. Unless you do organized play in a home game, which I would strongly advise because you have so much more flexibility with time. Mm -hmm. The pros that I've found are, especially with um, the most recent scenarios, I've, the quality of writing is spectacular. Um, it has really just been going continuously up, and as someone who runs a lot, looking behind that curtain and seeing what other people are creating is really, really cool. And I've generally gotten almost all positive feedback from players who have been playing with me, and I do my best to express as much of that going on in the background as possible to them. Um, one thing about organized play is I would just really encourage anyone who gives it a go to not be discouraged with the first go. Try to find yourself at least 
three different GMs and get a feel for different styles. You'll be able to have an idea of who else is in your area, um, what kind of play style is going on, and how you feel about it. Because like our Burlington area is a really talented group of role players and pretty good um, rule rule mastery. Mm -hmm. I've heard horror stories about other areas where like that really dedicated role player comes in and is just like completely overwhelmed by um, other players who don't necessarily follow that unspoken don't be a jerk rule. Right. And they're like, oh, you're playing your character completely wrong. Why aren't you two-handing that? No, you, you don't have power attack. You're level three now. So just be aware that because it's a public game that your mileage may vary. Right. Um, but I hope that everyone finds a table full of people who are as awesome as the players that I regularly play with. Because really that's what brings me back. Like no matter how good the writing is and how how much I like my characters, um, the fact that I'm sitting down with other people who are also playing characters that I like, uh, you know, that's what makes the hobby. Right. We, we've sort of touched on a lot of this throughout the course of the episode, but let's just put it on Front Street. For someone who wants to check out Pathfinder Society, what are their options in Burlington and wider Vermont? Um, in Burlington, we have approximately two to three game days a week um, operating out of Quarter Staff Games, which is right on Church Street for anyone familiar with the area. Mm -hmm. Looking at our Green Mountain Lodge Pathfinder Society site, um, places that have also scheduled games within the greater Vermont area um, include Gamers Grotto in Bennington, Vermont, Modern Myths in Northampton, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, uh, and Toy City in Keene, New Hampshire, and World Apart Games in Amherst, Mass. As someone who does a lot of coordinating with the store it's not that scary and you can do it too mm -hmm. so if you talk to your store and you say hey is there a pathfinder society group there no would you like one it's actually surprisingly simple to run because all you really need to do is get three people who are willing to take four hours and in general i find a lot of gamers are incredibly patient to try new things when you say hey we're going to do dork things together. Would you like to come do dork things with us? I know that's something that always like gets my interest. Oh, you have a new board game? <laughs> and, you know, give it a shot. Those shops have all listed games. This also lists Fantasy Realms in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. But I'm looking at the Warhorn site. You, you are looking at the Green Mountain Pathfinder Lodge on Warhorn.net. Green Mountain Lodge PFS on warhorn.net which and, is how we primarily communicate what is being played where right and this will this will be linked in the show notes as will the individual stores but just to give people an idea it warhorn is like a sort of a calendaring scheduling sign up system it is one of my favorite tools as a gm because when i'm doing my prep the day before i can look at it and say oh these guys signed up with like level 11 pregen so i'd get to hammer them with these sets of spells instead of having to use the 8-9 tier. And it's a good way to get a look at what other people are thinking about bringing to the party if you're the sort of person who really, really needs to have that rogue, wizard, cleric, um, fighter combo. Mm -hmm. 
Or if you're just the sort of person who likes to uh, be reserved in advance. I know that my uh, policy at tables is people who have signed up on the Warhorn get first preference. And if you're a drop-in, we'll do our best to seat you. But I want the people who are really excited to be here and putting that extra effort in to get first crack. Right. Which, but then doesn't stop you from saying, oh, well, I'll run a table of first levels because you want them to enjoy it. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, having new players come in is how we get more people to play with. And right. it's really what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And so the, the sort of sign up and scheduling stuff happens through Warhorn, but there's also a Google group where most of the conversation happens. Yes, the Google group is the uh, Northern Vermont Pathfinders Society is how our Burlington chapter primarily communicates. And that's, I send out an email about once a week saying, this is what's being run this week. Or on occasion, no one is running anything this week. Can we fix this? <laughs> and people will step up and say, hey, I'd love to play on Sunday. Can we make a game happen? And we see whether or not we can make a game happen. Mm-hmm. So the scenarios run about $4 for a PDF. Um, so I've seen a lot of people run right off of their iPad or Android thing. Um, I'm a bibliophile, so I'm the sort of person who goes, yeah, I can spend that much on ink mm -hmm. and have the pages printed off in my hand. And all you really need to run is internet access, which you're going to need for the PDF anyways, because all of the core rulebook, um, all of the core rulebooks for Paizo's Pathfinder line is available on a reference document on their website. So there have been books that I don't personally own because Shakespeare got to get paid. So I can look at, oh, I need a giant flea from Bestiary 4 and go look up the giant flea stats and then cackle because attacking PCs with giant fleas is just awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, where are we going with that? Um, yeah, so you can put, you can, these people, you, people can buy the modules, play them at home. Do, no, is it just like home versus store? Or do you, have you heard about like groups in libraries and church basements? Um, I have not personally heard of libraries or church basements, but if you can get a group of players, you can play it anywhere. What really ties you back to the Pathfinder Society organized play group, not to be confused with the Pathfinder Society in character group, and I'm gesticulating to show that they're two very separate groups. He is. They're, they're, they're separated by several feet, one of which has swords. Yes, one of them has swords and the other one are fictional. <laughs> no, one of them has swords and is fictional. Right. And the other um, collects data from GM saying, I ran the adventure in the cake factory with PCs A, B, C, and D. And it was delicious. And everyone had an excellent time and ate cake. Um, and so the... Uh, the powers that be back in Seattle where Paizo was based um, can collect data and say, wow, we have a lot of people playing this adventure in this level range. And that gives them more metadata to sort of decide how they're going to develop further adventures for further people to play. Right. 
and they've been really responsive on as a whole. That's something I've seen with Paizo in all of my interactions, both as buying um, like novels to read or gaming supplies or gaming books. Is their uh, responsiveness with their customers is through the roof. I actually recently got a book that I went, there's a weird scribble in here. I'm not really sure what this is. So I went onto the forums and I took a picture of the book and I said, my book has this weird scribble. And within like a week, someone had said, hey, sorry about that. Sometimes we get them from like Google second sellers. So we'll get this back to you. And then someone from their editing team said, no, actually, that's an autograph from the person who wrote the foreword for this. So how about you keep your book? And I said, yes, I would love to keep my book because this is awesome. Um, having a company that's like that close with their customers is always really cool. Yeah. And you can see that in all of their product lines and in society play, they've definitely put conscious thought into what people want to see from... Um, their their scenarios they just released a module that is specifically for first time characters that is replayable changes depending on whether or not everyone has already played it once so you can surprise someone who's like okay i'm replaying this because it's a first level table and we gotta get the first levels up to second level so um and it has some twists that if you're playing it for a second time you can't just go on autopilot because you walk into one room and where you expected to have a diplomatic conversation there's instead death disease terror etc mm-hmm. typical role-playing tropes sure the, all this metadata that Paizo's collecting have you are you seeing any ways that's shaping either game development itself or um or or the the the, the direction and scope of, of of uh, the society both isn't really an accurate response to that but that's my first thought um in terms of the society the metadata gets collected on how factions are doing mm-hmm. so whether a fact to go back to the faction talk um, whether a faction is like doing really well and has a lot of like effective people representing their faction which I think plays into when a faction gets retired. Um, There's a certain amount of that in there. Mm -hmm. And one thing that they've started doing with the new season is as a GM reporting at the end of the session, they'll give me a whole bunch of check check marks to go through and they say, okay, so you're, you're in the adventure at the cake factory. If the PCs ate the cake in the first room, check box A. If the PCs tipped the, like, cake boiling apparatus into the bottomless pit, check box B. If the PCs let the sentient cake golem live, check box C. If they kill the cake golem, check box D. <laughs> and I haven't seen any of those check boxes come into play because it's something that they just introduced back in July. Mm-hmm. And they plan out the the story arcs for some of these scenarios months in advance. But I imagine that I'm going to go ahead and risk putting my foot in my mouth, say that I'm expecting to see some of those fruits of player labor return by the end of the season, which wraps up in July. So it's a little like... Um collectible card game tournaments where that might determine a faction's descent or ascendancy. 
yes, L5R, we are calling out to you right now. <laughs> um, yes, I suspect that they're taking a page out of that particular living world instance and trying to get players to have more of that impact on the world so they can, you know, see a deposed faction leader and say, hey, I helped do that. Or I failed to stop that. <laughs> or I drastically failed, and my character must live with this hanging over his head for the rest of his life, or until I retire him. Mm -hmm. Or her. So going back to what you were saying about Paizo's interaction with their player base, I mean, I, that's it's sort of become their calling card, at least since the dawn of Pathfinder, where they had the playtest, and now a uh, number of their supplementary, supplemental rulebooks have also gone through a similar playtest cycle, with putting the documents out for anyone to... Peruse. Yes, and I know a lot of the Burlington player base is really excited with the release of the advanced class guide playtests, which have like hybrid classes. So finally, instead of being a ranger and a druid, I am now a hunter, which is some sort of ranger druid hybrid. Um, so look forward to that book, all of you already Pathfinder fans, because I know I am. And does, now, in that instance, is that supplanting multi-classing? It, well, Paizo has always been pretty upfront about not really being huge fans of multi-classing or prestige classes. Their mm -hmm. designers have been like, I don't like them. I haven't really paid attention to why. Despite that they've published does, well, many, the, many prestige classes. They've done, I think, a great job of catering to players who don't share their dislike for them. Mm -hmm. And I know as someone, I, I get suckered into prestige classes a lot where I look at one and I go, that looks like an awesome concept. And I will sometimes craft a character around getting to that. Um, so what the new classes are supposed to do are remove... Are, are to blend different class features together in a single base class going from level 1 all the way up to level 20. Um, off the top of my head, I just recently saw a Brawler in play, which mm -hmm. is a combination of Fighter-Monk that takes away some of the limitations of having to be a lawful character and adds some of the martial prowess that comes with being a fighter and also has some unique retraining Mm -hmm. aspects to it so you're able to say i want to have these feats today because i'm gonna operate in this mode mm -hmm. i haven't paid too close attention to that one the one that i got really excited about is the blood rager mm -hmm. which is a combination barbarian and sorcerer right so you're able to spontaneously cast spells while in some sort of arcane trance-like rage. Sure. So that is one that me and I think a lot of other people immediately got excited about. So I need to premiere my Blood Rager before everyone else does so they look like the copycats. Right. You gotta get there first. But yeah, the designers instead of just having their playtest like in the break room, like over lunch, we're putting it out to the community and saying, we want you guys to give us like hard data because I think they understand that a lot of their player base are people who crunch numbers like this for fun. So mm -hmm. they can tell you the damage per round of a flurrying monk versus a two-weapon fighter. Right. Um, and so they said, you have this skill. We trust you to use this skill. So use it and tell us about it. Right. 
Um, so people were putting them into home games and taking careful notes on how the character acted in real situations. They were um, just theory crafting, doing the same sort of thing that someone you know tries to see how many attacks they can have a barbarian make. Yeah. And building it out just on paper and seeing how it would look compared to other classes. And um, they do release actual change. I know the playtest document got updated at some point in December mm -hmm. in order to uh, now f uh, firm up what changes that the playtesters saw and the development team weighed and found that they were going to implement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, having that many eyes on a system with that many variables is always going to improve it and find something that the designers weren't thinking about because in their own local meta, to, to go back to CCGs for a second, they don't play that way. Uh, yeah, um, and uh, yeah, it's giving it to that many eyes is encouraging people to figure out whether or not they can break it. Um, and, you know, when it's something that... You know, a million people say, oh, my God, that's so easy to break. That can just be as easy as, like, the intern forgot to have their coffee that morning. Right. And so completely missed the fact that they left out this particular word. So suddenly you're able to, like, triple stack your decks onto damage or something absurdly broken like that. Right. Are there any other, uh, there's the Paizo forums, uh, when you can drill down deep in a number of areas, there's the Warhorn site for, and... That's organizing and getting groups to, especially larger groups together. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, because you'll find conventions and regular game events in there. Yeah, I'm, and actually one of the newest things about Warhorn, it used to be that every individual group you needed to have a different login, but now Warhorn operates as sort of an umbrella. So you make one login, and so I'm originally a Flatlander, Please don't sign off yet. <laughs> Let me finish. Um, from upstate New York. So I am also a part of the upstate New York Lodge in the event that I'm home for more than 24 hours and can get myself into Albany to pick up a game. Because mm -hmm. it's, a living, it's a living campaign. So I want to be able to take my characters to new places, show them off, and inflict my characters' personalities on them as well. Warhorn, which is an umbrella, as you, as you say. Yeah. sort of People can find a lot of different groups and conventions listed there. Uh, there's the Northeast, no, there's the Northern Vermont Pathfinder Society Google Group. Yep, if you are in the Burlington area and you want to join us a quarter staff, um, one of the easiest ways to just get a, get a thumb on the pulse of what is going on in the group week to week. Yeah, because it's, you know, usually, oh god, I can't believe I just died, or who's going to run a game? Yes. Mostly who's going to run a game if you die, don't post spoilers, guys. No. <laughs> um... Are there any other resources you recommend for people who are interested in learning more about Pathfinder or Pathfinder Society? I would check in at your local game store if you have one. See what other people's experiences have been because the people that you talk to in your game store are going to be the people that you're most likely to be playing with. But mm -hmm. people's experiences on the forums, you're going to have people who have had such an awesome time that they just need to crow about it. People who have had such an awful time that they something needs to be fixed by someone on the internet for them. Or people who are just on the internet a whole lot. And so have a lot of, like, theories. But, you know, maybe they get to game a lot. Maybe they don't, no matter what. They're there to have an opinion on it. So your mileage is going to vary depending on where you are. So if this sounds like a 
fun time to you. I give you my blessing to go make it happen. And with that, uh, thank you very much, John, for convincing everybody that should go out and try Pathfinder if they haven't already. Thank you. You've been listening to Carnage Cast, a production of NNEG LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit us at www.carnagecon.com.